Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madden, the podcast that gives you the insights, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour Podcast and your host today is Carla Reffold. Today we are joined by Naveen Vasudeva. Naveen is an information security risk professional with a strong financial services experience knowledge built over the past 23 years, working in London, Paris, Zurich, Singapore, Hong Kong and Japan, covering a range of global senior executive management positions including security risk, control and compliance, business risk, process design and global security consultation. Hope you enjoy it. for cybersecurity and corporate governance professionals, leveraging our long-held relationships, industry knowledge, and data-driven approach, we help companies and candidates make better hiring decisions. Naveen, thank you so much for coming on and, and talking to us today. Um, we've known each other a long time. You're one of my favourite people. You know oh, that. <laughs> um, so let's uh, let's let everybody else get to know you a little bit. Tell us about um, where you grew up and, and uh, your story around that. Sure. Well, th- thank you for having me on, Carla. It's a, it's, it's a great pleasure. So um, well, I grew up in um, in Somerset, actually, in in, in, a, in a town called Yeovil. Um, I was there till I was about five, I think, and uh, the family and I uh, moved out to Kuwait, um, where we lived for about 10 years. Um, my dad uh, is an electronical engineer, and he, he got a job out there working for an investment bank, uh, which was really good. Uh, and then because of the Gulf War, um, we, we came back to the UK uh, when I was about 14. So yeah, been been um, based um, in and around Yeovil for a few years before I moved up to London. Nice. And what about education? Where did you do that? So uh, <laughs> I went to school in uh, a place called Romsey. Um, I was a private school. So because of um, the family moved back from Kuwait. We were all a bit disrupted at the time, and uh, and so my my dad thought it would be a really good idea for us to continue our education in 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 the way that he saw best. So he put us into that, or put me. It was an all boys all boys school actually, and put me into that school where I studied for a couple of years before I ended up going back to to college <clears throat> um, in in Yeovil. Uh, I made it as far as my first year in university at University of Kent, where I was studying a, a degree. But actually, it wasn't. It wasn't for me because I'm dyslexic, and I think um, my natural inclination around uh, standardised learning was really difficult. Um, so the structure that that I was thrown into was was really hard for me to to fathom. So I couldn't I couldn't take the sort of textbook learning process, um, and I would always fight against it. Uh, and so the sort of that realization at a very early age that very good at coding, very good at development. So this is what I sort of studied at BTEC in computer science, and you know was was really good at that and passed that with distinction. And I thought my natural stance would be to go into sort of that coding field, which I did for work, but uh, I could never get it around sort of the educational track. And I think that dyslexia played a big part in my struggle from a from a standard sort of educational standpoint. 
Did you know you were dyslexic? Um, yeah, I, uh, I didn't know until I was about 16, actually. Um, so I, and, and, and it was a bit of a revelation, to be honest. Uh, it was, it was uh, picked up by a teacher at school um, because the way that I would be able to respond to something verbally versus the way that I would respond to something written was, they were miles apart. Um, and so uh, in, in my early years, people would put it down to laziness. They're like, oh, Naveen, you're so lazy. You, uh, you, you can't be bothered to do X, Y, and Z. And, and I used to think, well, no, I'm not. You know, I'm not, I'm not a lazy person. Well, I can be, but, you know, in, the, in those circumstances, I, I wasn't. And so I, I sort of said, um, uh, this, this teacher, sort of English teacher, she actually then put me through this test. And she goes, actually, I would like you to go to a formal testing. So they, they did send me to this formal testing center um, and yeah, I, I'd come out as dyslexic. So it explained a lot of things for me, um, uh, but I didn't really let it alter the sort of the way that I thought. Um, um, uh, and actually it's, it still can be a bit of a challenge. I'm still um, quite conscious of the way that I, that I write um, um, and, and do find that challenging at times, yeah. So when did you first hear about cybersecurity? So I was always a bit of a geek and uh, always a pretty salam. But um, so my 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 very first uh, assignment at school when I was about 13 years old, when I started learning about computers in, in a bit more detail was uh, um, I started coding in, in, a, in a language called basic. You know, I'm sure you've heard of if you're old enough to know what that is. Um, uh, and I started to build a, a very small interface um, in, in BASIC. Um, <clears throat> and it was all about comic books, you know, wanting to, to, to categorize my comic books in, in order of reviews. Yeah, because, you know, add Why to not? the geek, you know, <laughs> add to that geek factor. Um, but I didn't want my sister to really know what I was doing. Not that my sister would care less me uh, um, uh, writing a, a silly little program on a computer. Uh, but I thought, you know, I want it to be secret. And therefore, I tried to figure out how to password protect the thing. Uh, but because BASIC was so basic, it didn't really have uh, uh, sophisticated enough um, structures around password protection that were, you know, very good. But anyway, I, I, I started to... To, to understand the need for um, for privacy, for protection. And I think the, the, the exit from Kuwait when I was 14, so being in that real life uh, situation where actually the information that um, we were holding was so precious that it could cost us our lives, that sense that actually, um, um, uh, it has such a powerful intent and therefore, you know, uh, it should be protected in such a way. So I think at a very young age, I, I truly understood that this is something I want to get involved in, whether it was, you know, through intelligence gathering or, you know, information protection or just general public service in some way. Uh, I would want to pursue a career in this. And I think, you know, when I got that first opportunity um, to really do it, it was it was more like a dream come true and everything else. And at that point, I sort of had, had, had bummed out of university because I couldn't cope with it, um, uh, um, you know, from a 
from a learning perspective. And then this opportunity came on to work for an investment bank. And I thought, whoa, this is so cool. Uh, and then sort of in between that, I did a bit of coding. But security had always been sort of the forefront of my mind. And you've just touched on it. You know, you went into financial services. You moved up pretty quickly and have done a, a few very nice roles in, in those companies. <laughs> so did you enjoy all that? Oh, uh, God, um, did I enjoy it? So... I, th- I think at the beginning it was it was really um, such a steep learning curve, right? Um, you know, being being 21, 2021, and um, you know, suddenly having an opportunity to work for a tier one, you know, global investment bank, you know, no degree behind me, um, this feeling that uh, I, I'd suddenly been privileged with something, you know, it was so exciting. Um, and then also, uh, funnily enough, you know, uh, you, you felt this sense of uh, achievement and not wanting to let the person that hired you down, right? You know, it was uh, this sense of gratitude as well that someone would take the time to, you know, offer somebody with, with limited qualifications, limited work experience, um, you know, in the eyes of everybody else, a very limited education into, um, you know, a security team within a, within a bank. Uh, but this individual, you know, they took their time. They helped me um, acclimatize. They helped with um, education um, on the job. They helped with training on the job. And, um, you know, that, that gave me a sense of confidence, right, which I probably was lacking. Um, so there's nothing better than, a, um, I suppose, in, in my eyes, a, an individual that's willing to invest time in you. And that's, you know, a lot of credit to those people that, that do that um, and that's what made it exciting because suddenly I felt I was armed with knowledge I didn't have before and the way that I was taught it was was actually probably the way that it was appropriate for me to digest it so this this sort of realization that I was very capable of doing something which I may have not known before um, it's not all been great <laughs> there have been elements of my career which have which have probably taken a turn um, uh, and I, I do think some of it's been been quite challenging. Um, uh, I think, especially in financial services, the amount of pressure we put on ourselves is immense. Um, there's there's this untold pressure. I think we get a lot from from the organisation itself uh, to be quite readily available, um, which which can put a put a strain on your your physical health. It can put a strain on your mental health. Um, and back then, um, the sense of duty of care probably didn't really exist that it does today. Uh, so all the millennials and centennials that complain about their long hours, you know, they need to check themselves because actually, um, well, you know, we, we uh, and I'm sure you've experienced this, having worked, you know, 14, 15, 16 hour days um, with little recognition, with, you know, little credit, Um but it takes those those leaders to to recognise that, and it's been hit and miss in some organisations, right? And that and that goes down to organisational culture as well, and the way that people behave, which is also a challenge. Yeah. Well, this is what I really want to get into with you. So, you know, the dark side of this this CISO role. So, uh, we did a bit of research tracking uh, CISOs over the past year, and found that. They're not moving from CISO role to CISO role and getting these exciting pay increases. If anything, they're leaving the industry. So only 20% of CISOs that changed jobs went into another CISO role. They're going into advisory roles, virtual CISO positions. Why are they doing that? 
I, I think, I mean, it's it's a really interesting statistic, number one, and, and, and you know, number two, probably not that surprising. So um, I, I, I think there are, there's a genuine misunderstanding as to what a CISO should and shouldn't do. And um, I think a lot of times organizations are um, designing a role um, um, around an organizational construct rather than, you know, a potential individual, right? Um, and that's fair enough, but I think the wish list is too big, right? So, um, and maybe in some cases, organizations don't know what they want, right? And therefore are sort of shooting in in, in, in the dark. Um, and then they base it around, let's have all of these technical qualifications, let's have all these certifications, let them be this pillar of industry, you know, let them have all these accolades and awards. So I think that's a lot of noise and nonsense, right? Because it doesn't translate to um, capability, right? Um, and people are capable of doing things in, in, in different scenarios. So I think one of the reasons why actually, to, you know, to answer your question, one of the reasons why I think there's a lot of burnout, right, in the industry is because um, uh, an organizational stance is, is set at such a high standard that you know the the in, in individual is never going to be able to achieve it, right? So there's a level setting that needs to be done around what's what's capable and feasible and practical versus I want all of this to secure our organization. It's just never going to happen. The other thing is 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 around um, uh, you know overpromising and underdelivering. So some CISOs will overpromise. Yes, I can do all the stuff that you asked me to do, and therefore don't get to the point where they can deliver it because they they just don't have the capacity, capability, and or resources to be able to do it, uh, and therefore are you know burning out and leaving organisations. But I think one of the the most prevalent things I've seen with basically peers in my industry, and actually even myself, whereas. Um, you go into an organization to to foster change. You're going into an organization to help secure an environment that's potentially rather complex. It's um, um, uh, uh, it, it's complex and complicated to the degree you may not have all the things that you need to be able to do that job, but you're presenting the best approach to do it. Now, you're either going to get buy-in, you either have the influence or you don't. And the challenge is if you do, that's great. You may get to a certain point where that dries up. Um, you know, uh, it's a, a continuous wheel of having to convince people to do something, and that's what I don't think security is about. It's about behaviour and, uh, and and cultural behaviour, um, and the way that you, as an organisation, you know, treat security as a whole, not the function, not the individual. But I think you get to a point where you feel like you're banging your head on a on a brick wall, having the same conversation again and again and again. Um, and to me, that you know, that that burnout is quite clear. You don't want to then be in that position continuously, having to have that same conversation. You just sit on the periphery and advise. So you know, um, yeah, it's it's a real challenge. And and I don't know how we can start to convince organisations to change that approach to the way that they talk about and treat security professionals. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, and that, that's the flip side. So the other side of our research is companies aren't replacing their CISOs. So when the CISOs leave, only 10% had actually replaced them. And maybe a few were still recruiting or, you know, had put CISOs in different locations, but very few had replaced them. They're obviously not seeing the value. 
And, and I don't think it's not about, it's not just about the value. I think um, in situations like that, I think it's about the organization has not gelled with that CISO and the CISO hasn't gelled with them. And, and you've now left this vacuum. So it's left a bitter taste in, in both parties' mouths. Um, and therefore, an organization is not going to rush to hire another one. Right. You know, um, which is uh, illogical <laughs> because if you're a tier one you know, uh, global organization, you know, the protection of your assets, your protection of your consumer assets, your your customers' assets, right, and your employees' assets are, are extremely important. Um, and if you don't take that seriously, the organization is the one that's going to suffer in the end, not not the individual's concern. Um, and, and actually, it's quite, it's quite interesting that um, uh, they may then jump into hiring really expensive advisory services to come and fill that void, um, you know, in, in the interim. So I think there has to be an adjustment, you know, at a C-suite. And, and the one thing I would also say is that I just don't believe that a security um, professional has or is regarded as a part of that C-suite. We might call ourselves chiefs. But we're we're chiefs of nothing, really. Yeah, we we're, we're not really included in the band of you know C-suite execs. Um, I haven't seen it really really work very well to date. We're always ending up reporting to CIOs, which I think is totally nonsense. Um, CROs, which makes some sense. Um, CTOs, which make no sense. Yeah, because CIOs and CTOs conflict of interest. Um, very rarely do you report into the CEO or, um, you know, uh, at a board level. You may be accountable to a board. Um, you may be accountable to an executive group, but your direct reporting um, is also a show of how mature the, 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 the structure around a, um, cybersecurity or information security is because they're not willing to make that change. You know, what one CEO has told me, you know, I, you know it's, it's a headache, right? You know, I don't want this headache. I don't I don't want to know something separately about security when when they themselves perceive it as a technology issue, which is not or they just purely see it as a risk issue, which is which is not either. So, yeah, big challenge. Now, I've heard it said that if, you know, if you as the CISO don't have the ear of your board, then then who does? So do you see a conflict of interest there that other people are getting involved? So um, the question is, um, uh, okay, ear of the board is, is one thing. I think if you don't have enough gravitas and influence within an organization, you're never going to convince anybody of anything, right? And I think it's a two-prong approach, right? It's good to have a buy-in from um, an executive board. And by the way, a board is not that interested in so much knowledge around cyber. You know, um, you may, if you're lucky enough to get to the point where I hear a lot of people say, I, I report to the board. But actually, it's probably not true. You may write a paper that goes to a board that explains um, the current state of informational cybersecurity into, in an organization. Um, and you're likely to have, what, maybe a two, two pages of A4 to explain know where you are so i think you've got to contextualize everything so um if you're lucky enough to you know present to a board yeah about your program of work then then make sure you're focusing on the right things right because your job isn't to go and scaremonger your job isn't to go and um uh, point the finger and 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 stress where your ceo might be failing <laughs> 
definitely career limiting. <laughs> <laughs> um, probably not a good idea to to blame anyone really. Actually, uh, take the emotion out of it and be just be factual uh, uh, and and be concise and um, um, make sure you've got the confidence to follow through in what you're saying. Right? You know, so believe in it yourself because if you don't, they won't. Um, and and be also be very clear about what you're asking. Are you asking for action? Are you asking them to do something for you? Are you asking them for money, right? You know, so so they can invest. Um, are you asking them for support? You know, be very concise about you know what it is that you're you're doing. I think once you then get to the layer down, which is more of the leadership and 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 management uh, scales. Your job then is to, um, uh, you know, take something that that's rather technical, complicated, and operational into a strategy, and make sure your strategy is absolutely clear. But fundamentally, you've got to then go to the bottom of the the, the food chain and make sure that you're embedding the right practices, policies, technical processes, controls, you know, in there. Uh, and investing in the right technology so that you can support from the top down. So you're doing it from both angles. So I, I would actually say that rather than just having the ear of the board, have the influence of the organization and help adapt cultural change and behavioral change. Because if you can't change behavior, forget it. It's all, it's all pointless, right? You know? The best will in the world won't work, right? You know, um, it's like, you know, um, People complain about um, cybersecurity professionals writing policies in ivory towers, right? I'm sure it happens. Yeah, I'm sure that that that's still very common practice for a lot of uh, organisations. Actually, it's not just about writing policies; it's about making sure those policies are right for the organisation, which some people forget about. Now, there's lots of technical qualifications to prove you know your your stuff, and if you if you're part of a, an IT team, ultimately, you know you're going to get that technical support. But where can you go to get the support on these business skills, the influence, and and how to present? So um, you're, you're right. I think I think uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, there are a lot of uh, for-profit organisations that provide information security, education, training and awareness, right? Uh, um, I don't necessarily agree with them all. Um, I think certification is is slightly corrupt um, because it's all for profit, right? So, you know, I would like to see um, a much more standardized free-for-all governing body around information security. So in a similar way that the FCA and the PRA are, are um, responsible for independence around, um, you know, financial services firms. I think um, there has to be a, a code of conduct or practice that 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 has a similar view around how we train and educate um, cybersecurity professionals. So, um, if you take the point of you can't become a a CISP for five years, so you need to demonstrate you have a certain level of technical knowledge. Well, how does that help? The very technically gifted that didn't go to university, that didn't go to college, that has the skill. Um, we're effectively saying that they can't be accredited to something for X number, you know, um, for this amount of time. And I think there's a lot of these out there. But to the to the question around where do we go for the softer skills, I would go if you again if you work for a big tier one organisation, they will definitely have them. So they will have. Um, uh, a fixed amount of money that you could spend on education, training, and awareness. And look, we're in lockdown at the moment. Yeah, um, 
take advantage of that. Um, your company, if you work for a tier one, you're not on furlough, that you're still at work, take the time to educate because your diary is not going to be as busy as it, as it was. Um, and, and by the way, actually, I believe, and, and, and I need to validate this, but even if you're on furlough, I think you could still train. Um, so, so there's an opportunity for you to look at what your, your HR departments or your learning and de- development departments are doing currently and take advantage of that. Um, if your company has budget but doesn't have on-site training or you know um, e-learning or whatever the, whatever it is, um, I would be asking your again your HR teams what budget they have for uh, for training and whether you can enroll in any courses during lockdown, right? You know because it's uh, probably vital. The other thing I would say, Harvard University is offering about um, 70 free online courses at the moment. And to that point, they're doing around humanities. So um, information around, um, you know, uh, I, I think I saw a course around how to how to manage a manager, which I always like. I love those courses. Right. Um, so, so how best to deal with the expectations of the person that's sitting above you. Um, and it doesn't matter. There's always someone sitting above you. Right. There um, is. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so so you know and the softer side look you know uh uh uh, find a mentor right if you don't have one um uh go go and talk to senior leaders within the business and they don't have to be from it or for information security find somebody that inspires you that um you look up to right you know um uh and actually it's something i did i made sure um I had, you know, when I was in my 20s, I had a a business leader because I knew nothing about financial services. Probably knew nothing about security in my 20s either. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, I, I I found somebody that um that 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 sort of gave that sense that they knew what they were talking about and uh, were willing to give me time. So yeah, find a mentor, and they don't need to be part of that that business. Find a coach, and actually. Uh, the more people you connect with within an organization, the more you're going to learn about you as an individual and, and, and sort of the way that you can train and learn. And B, you'll find out what works for you because everybody learns differently. They're, they're not the same. Now, you run networking events, Brexit. Um, tell us a little bit about that. But also, you know, what's the value of going to networking events, do you think? So, so Brexit actually started as a piss take. It was a bit of a joke. Um, uh, uh, without mentioning any names, there is an individual that that, that runs a specific cybersecurity uh, networking event on a on a monthly basis, and um, uh, uh, I found out that actually, when you're not part of the security community, as in you're not actively in a role, you're no longer welcome at that event. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, so, so when you're not global head of or chief of this or head of that, you suddenly became quite dispensable. Uh, and I thought, well, actually, that's just nonsense. Um, um, you shouldn't be invited to events or seniority. And look, I know at the end of the day, that's all around budget, right? You know, if you've got sign off power, you know, that that particular organization is just looking for avenues to be able to sell, right? You know, so they're not really in it for the network. They're in it for the bottom dollar. Um, so I thought actually, um, and, and me and a couple of others, we we sat down and said, okay, what can we do to 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 bring the community together? We said, okay, we'll just do a meetup. But actually that meetup um, turned into 150 people, 
we're like, whoa, this is just astonishing. And it was like the Green Man before they knocked it down, right, uh, in, in central London and, and built the Bloomberg building, which is standing there now. Um, but it was really interesting just to see. And even in that very first meetup, we had people from banking, from from pharma, from um, uh, startups, you know, uh, you know, fintechs, you know, medical device companies. Uh, we had uh, some of the big four. We even had, a, um, I, I think, a COO turn up, which was shocking. You know, so it was really interesting. And, 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 and what was even more shocking is that sort of everyone put in 20 quid and we suddenly had 150 quid times 20, you know, uh, uh, well, you know, um, uh, 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 20 times 150, which we were able to put behind the bar. Uh, so dyslexia and uh, uh, it, it made me laugh about how self-funding that was and uh, how that turned into you know something really interesting uh, but the power of that network was also astonishing suddenly all of these new connections we had quite young people in cyber turn up looking for what I was just talking about actually mentorship you know access that they've never had uh, some in all you know, it's like Caesar Rockstar you know, like uh, some of the guys were like, wow, you know, I feel like a rock star because suddenly, you know, people want to listen to me and stuff. You know, actually, it's really interesting. And it broke down all these barriers um, that I thought that actually we should continue with that. So the value of, of inviting people from cross sections of industry and not necessarily cyber, right, but just cross sections in general. Uh, inviting the senior leaders within cyber, inviting junior people, inviting up and coming people, but more importantly, inviting vendors and suppliers and recruitment agencies to it as well. Because what's the point in having a whole bunch of dudes sitting in a room talking about the same stuff? Yeah, it, it provides no value. You know, me and five other CISOs, great. It's, we're going to have a great conversation. You know, um, you know, all I'm going to do is hurt my liver by drinking a lot because I want to drown out that noise. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so I actually, uh, uh, we actually thought, well, let's bring the community together. So the premise of Brexit now, A, it was a bit of a, three years it's been running and funny enough we're still in the brexit situation but um i i suppose the power of it is um um being able to to say to people that you're free to come regardless of what it is you do what position you hold what side of the sector you sit on i don't really care and also whether you're a supplier vendor or, or end user what difference does it make um and what it did for us actually because we're, we're not making any money out of this, this is not for profit in any way um you know we had a few we were lucky enough to get some some vendor support now we're actually going to hopefully try to do a virtual one but i don't know whether it will work as well as the face-to-face -face stuff but i think i think there's power in that face-to-face -face engagement and interaction as well so yeah once the world is returned to some some normality you know we'll definitely start that that process up again and I think for anyone that hasn't been, um, the the events are really welcoming and they are really diverse, not just in, in role, but, you know, I've met, there's lots of women at the events um, and everyone wants to help. And I think about our, our security community, people generally want to help each other. I totally agree. Um, uh, I, I think the... It's a really hard balance, you know, and I, I've spoken to a lot of my um, my colleagues in, in the industry um, uh, and, you know, um, my sisters work in, in cyber. Uh, one of them works in cyber, you know, um, 
one of them, you know, uh, in financial services and, and, and speaking to them about what's welcoming about, you know, bringing people to events. And the thing is, you know, obviously uh, we've got a code of conduct, you know, we, we, we follow that in, 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 in the right way. Um, I think, I think we have learned that, um, you know, providing safety and security, not for just women, but for men as well, you know, having that sense of actually, I do care about what happens to you if you, if you come to these events, you know, we won't tolerate any noise and nonsense. And what we found is actually the conversation is light, it's fun, it's enjoyable. Um, um, we're, we're surrounding ourselves with not just like-minded people, but decent people, you know, and to your point that, you know, that want to provide support and assistance and, and the offers for assistance are genuine. They're not lechy. And people can, can walk away with a, with a sense of pride in the community that we're building. You know, we, we, we've now got, I think, a database of, you know, three and a half, four thousand people. Wow. Uh, and we can only accommodate like 80 you know, endless pockets, right? You know, uh, um, I, I, I think we, we're, we're doing quite well. Uh, and, and so long it should live, you know, the, the, the concept. I think the more that we can integrate things with, with others, the better, right? You know, if you think about the cost of something, actually you should be teaming up with other people to do stuff, right? You know, it just generates a, a broader and wider conversation. Now, if people want to go off and then build their own things from that, that's great. But actually, as a community, I think we're, we're, we are very good at coming together. Um, as we've seen with some of our peers that are doing stuff online right now for, for COVID-19, right? Yes, yeah, indeed. And the, one of the things that, um, you know, I know you're very big on is how we all protect our mental health at this point in time but in general as well you know the CISO level of burnout is high so why is that important to you and, and what do you think we should all be doing for each other? So I, I've you know and you're right mental health is a, is a is a big topic for me you know um uh I I've I suffered from mental health issues you know anxiety being one um really big for me um you know, PTSD, another, um, and that was mainly from being in that sort of active war zone and, and having to experience things as a child that I probably, no child should ever see, no child should ever go through. Um, um, and it's always there in the back of my mind. So, so I, I, I have a lot of anxiety around noise and tight spaces and things like that. And, and, you know, when it gets too much, I can get very flustered and, you know, feel, very ill and um my mechanism of coping is talking about it is expressing it is, is letting it out right um but also you know um i've had uh, periods of um depression especially when i was you know um going through relationship issues and i think a lot of people suffer from that um but that that took a real strain um both physically, mentally, it can drive you to do things that you as a rational person would normally do. You can overindulge in things that you shouldn't, um, you know, uh, and I was definitely on a, on, a, on a downward spiral at one point in my life. So I think it's really, because I, I used to bottle all this stuff up, never really talk about it, never express myself. And especially uh, men, <laughs> you know, yeah. hard it caters at the most of times and they feel a sense of shame and, and embarrassment and um failing um it's all of that um alpha nonsense right you know that gets in the way of them um helping themselves 
um, um, Asian men in general don't talk about at all because of the stigmas that are attached to family and, and, and cultural ties, right? You know, so it becomes really complicated. Um, um, but what helped me through that and all of that is having a good uh, network of people around me, having good friends, having a solid, uh, you know, family structure. Now, look, not all people have that, right? You know, um, some people may just have their work colleagues that they consider part of their family or, you know, maybe some people don't have anybody and, and, and therefore talking about it is difficult. So, you know, uh, having access to mental health resources is extremely important, whether they're at work. Um, um, you know, I worry now that um, because of what's going on in the world, that this has been sort of sidelined. So people actively that have mental health issues, you know, anxiety, depression, um, are not are not looking after themselves very well. I think there could be added pressure, people working from home, um, you know, uh, where they're not used to being exposed to the same people constantly, 24 hours a day, you know, is generating its own stress. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, having having to having to suddenly uh, 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 because my my sister's a single parent so me Uncle Nav right you know I'm normally not <laughs> as much so, so suddenly you know I'm I'm looking after a two year old right you know and I, I don't as you know I don't have kids yet so it's like well this is a new experience so it, 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 I, it it's not adding to it but it's it's definitely it's it's having the reverse effect it's suddenly I've now started to appreciate you know my niece a, a, a lot more because I see her a lot. So, you know, to, to the other point you're making about burnout, I think CISOs are burning out because they don't look after their physical health. They don't look after their mental health. I can I can attest from, um, you know, certain things you feel so passionately about, right, you know, uh, professionally. Um, you feel you don't want your reputation to be damaged in, in, in the way that you deliver. And you can take things seriously, very personally. And if things don't pan out, you know, you're down to the pub, you're, you're, you're drinking, you're, you're spiraling, right? You're going to go down a really bad route. So look, you know, my advice is, you know, if you feel that uh, you're stuck, look, hey, just talk to me, DM me. I'm happy to have a conversation, right? You know, um, uh, but also I did a cyber talks last week uh, with Dr. Nicola Tweedy. Um, she gave some really good tips on on mental health issues. Um, she gave some great tips um, on public access to mental health in the UK. Um, and those services are actually currently being performed. So if you're really stuck, I would say pick up the phone, talk to your GP. It's the best advice I can give you. But hey, look at the resources you've got available at work as well, because they'll be able to help you too. Do you feel like once we come out of this pandemic, or at least out of um, some of the, the lockdown measures, do you think we'll see a positive shift on how mental health is dealt with? I hope so. I hope, um, I think there's got to be an adjustment on, on a couple of scales, right? The adjustment number one is is uh, the realisation that people can work from home. Uh, there are a lot of organisations that have used that as an excuse not to employ people. Um, so I hope that actually it would open up a market space for, um, you know, challenged or disabled individuals that have, have always been left in the background potentially because um, organisations couldn't accommodate um, people coming into the office if they were in a wheelchair or had other, you know, physical disabilities that prevented, you know, access for health and safety issues. That's all nonsense, right? You can, you know, provide a mechanism to, to work from home. And the speed in which people have done it, you know, technically is, again, not that complicated. So I hope it, it opens up avenues for people. 
I'm I'm worried that organisations though will want a rapid you know change back to normal, um, uh, and 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 that is a concern is 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 the rush back to normality and i think that normality equation has shifted so i hope i really hope to your point there is a positive spin on everything and and i think we as a human race are going to have to adjust of the way that we we think um and live right if you think about i mean it's awful everything that's going on at the moment is awful the loss of life is awful awful and 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 we, do, we should never diminish that right uh, in any way shape or form but there are some silver points to the to, to the social distancing, the behavioural change, the the way that we we speak to one another, the way that actually neighbours are actually talking to one another, they may have not done before. Um, you know, uh, the impact on the planet, right? You know, there's so many things that are are better. Um, maybe this is a, a a warning sign for us as a human race to change. You know, um, I'm getting all philosophical, but it could be. <laughs> Well, maybe. I guess it's going to be a little while before we uh, before we see. But um, it would be nice to think some positive stuff can come out of this. For sure. Um, and there's likely to be some positivity for the security industry, right? You know, security has never been more of a hot topic than with everyone working from home. Yeah, and you know what? I'm I'm shocked. I'm not seeing is where's all the innovation, innovational technology? I would have thought. Where with this time, you know, I would see automated vehicles out on the roads, you know, I would see robots, you know, doing deliveries, I would see drones out there. I mean, this is an ideal time, right, you know, for all of those innovative technologies to be tested correctly. Also an ideal time for security researchers to, you know, brutally test whether those things are secure or not, you know, so why is no one doing that? I mean, I'm lucky enough to live in Milton Keynes and, and, and I've, I've got, a you know, uh, we're, we're quite quiet where we live. But we've got robots doing deliveries in Milton Keynes, which is great. Wow. I did not know that. <laughs> <laughs> They're all over the place. Yeah. So, so, so uh, uh, it's and, and actually Google tests their automated vehicles. Here. So I actually thought we would see a bit more of that going on. Um but but actually, you can do your your Tesco shopping or your your whatever Asda shopping or whatever in in a in an automated drone, and it, it drives around, and drops it off. It's great. That is. <laughs> 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 now we end every podcast with some quick fire questions, so you need to answer as quickly as you can. Go for it. Go for it. Okay. What turns you on professionally? Knowledge. What turns you off professionally? Dumbness. <laughs> How do you unwind? With a beer. What profession other than your own would you like to try? Flight attendant. What activity gives you the most energy? Sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> Who is your biggest inspiration? You are. I love that answer. Favourite answer ever. <laughs> well, you are. Go if you had to present a speech right now, what one word would be its subject? Oh, I can't think too quickly about that. That's a difficult one. Ask me again in two seconds. <laughs> <laughs> if you're at your, you are at your best when you're doing what? Working. If today was the last day of your life, what one lesson would you impart? Life's too short. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm with you there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say as the reason he is letting you through the gates? I truly was um, uh, uh, I truly was a, 
um, an agent of change. There you go. Hmm. You got an answer for the speech one? Go on, go on. Ask the question again. <laughs> if you had to present a speech right now, what one word would be its subject? Freedom. <laughs> You've been locked up in the house too long. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's episode. For the latest episodes, please subscribe and for future conversations, reach out on Twitter and LinkedIn.